And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr, and suits so fine they made Sinatra look like a hobo. Is this your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? Really? It's really awful. But I have a lot of things that are on order, you know, credit trouble. Pay more attention to your schoolwork and listen to the radio. You always listen to the radio. It's different. Our lives are ruined already. The Whistler. self-destruct in five seconds. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. stars in the counterintelligence drama The Silent Men from 1951. Then it's part one of the quiz show Information Please, hosted by Clifton Fadiman from 1938. With me to help present these radio classics is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hey, Carl. How you doing, Dipley? I'm great. I'm good. How, How you we doing? Good. And Mike Estella's here as well. Hello, hello. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to tune into a very interesting radio series. We've never played one of these before. It's called The Silent Men. Now, this was an espionage series. Came to radio in 1951, as heard on NBC. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was the star. Now, he was... A perfect choice to play the lead role on this because he actually lived and worked with espionage and special operations for most of his State Department and U.S. Naval Reserve career throughout World War II. Now, this was a 29-episode series. Each episode comprised of compelling and interesting stories of intelligence warfare that was rarely, if ever, reported. Casts included William Conrad, Herb Butterfield, Virginia Gregg, Paul Fries, John Daner, and others. It was produced and directed by Warren Lewis. All right, it's time now for The Silent Men. This is called The Bogus GI. It's from December 16, 1951. Here's Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. in The Silent Men. Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. in The Silent Men. The National Broadcasting Company proudly presents Douglas Fairbanks' production of The Silent Men. Transcribed stories of the undercover operations of the special agents of every branch of our federal government and their relentless fight against crime. Now here is Douglas Fairbanks. In the main, a special agent's work is based on scientific fact and cold calculation. Seldom may an agent permit himself the luxury of personal emotions where a case is concerned. However, in tonight's story, it was with a great deal of personal satisfaction that Special Agent Fred Thompson helped apprehend and convict the bogus serviceman Sam Taylor. For of all the criminals who infest this great land of ours, none is as vicious as those who prey on the grief and suffering of families who have lost loved ones in the armed services of our country. In tonight's story, I play the role of Special Agent Fred Thompson in the file case entitled... The bogus G.I., of which only the names and places are fictional. The latest of these servicemen's families to be victimized was a Mrs. Dorothy Blake, a widow in St. Cloud, Minnesota. She worked in a small food processing plant. I walked through the factory and opened the door to the shop foreman's office. What can I do for you? I'd like to speak to Mrs. Blake. It's important. What about? There's a company rule. This is no personal call. 
Here, take a look at my identification. Uh, uh, yes, sir. Why don't you say so? I'll have her here in a minute. Yes, sir. Uh, Mrs. Blake? Yes? She's coming. All right. You talk to her here in your office, alone? Well, sure, sure. You want me? Uh, come in. The gentleman here wants to see you. Uh, I'll leave you alone. Thanks. I'm from Washington, Mrs. Blake. I'm a special agent. I've told the police everything that happened. Why can't I be left alone in... in... This is too big for a local police force, Mrs. Blake. Will you tell me all about it? Start at the beginning. It's like ripping open a wound the minute it shows signs of healing. I know, but it's important. Nothing's important to me anymore. The last important thing was the telegram telling me that Bobby had been killed in action. I don't know exactly how to put it, Mrs. Blake, but look. Your son fought a war to get rid of enemies abroad. But what about our enemies at home? Someone's got to fight them, too. Oh, God. The hope I felt when the woman told me he wasn't dead. Maybe you can help us find her. Find the gang she's working with. When I think of the other mothers and wives, she'll poison the same way. My pulse stops. Tell me about it, Mrs. Blake. It began with a phone call. It'd been two weeks since the telegram came from Washington. I was only beginning to get hold of myself. I was getting ready to go out after supper when she phoned. She said her name was Margaret Taylor and she wanted to see me right away. She wouldn't tell me why over the telephone. So I told her to come right down. Mrs. Blake? Yes? I'm Margaret Taylor. Oh, come in. Mrs. Blake, I have some wonderful news for you. Regards from your son, Bob. Bob? Oh, you poor child. You must be mistaken. God rest his soul, my Bob is dead. Dead? Oh, no. Where did it happen? At the prisoner of war camp? At Comshaw nearly three weeks ago. He'd gone out on patrol. Oh, no, Mrs. Blake, that isn't true at all. I've just heard from my husband this morning. They're both together in a prisoner of war camp in North Korea. They're both alive and well. Dear God, make this true. It is true. I have his letter here. The letter. Let me see it. Yes. You read the letter, Mrs. Blake? Yes. The letter had been smuggled out of the camp. Sent special regards to me from Bob, my son. It mentioned something about their possible escape? Yes. Yeah. Said that a regular underground movement of prisoners was taking place between the North Koreans and our boys. It took money to do it, and it had to be done very secretly. The letter said to contact a certain man in San Francisco who could arrange it, if we could get the money. Did it say how much money? No. We had to contact this Mr. Curry in San Francisco to find out. She phoned San Francisco from your house? Yes. You spoke to him? Part of the time. He told me that it would take $2,500 to get my boy out of the camp. But first he made me promise not to say anything about this to anyone else. He said that any investigation by the authorities would only break the chain. That hundreds of other boys' escape might be jeopardized. And you believed him? I wanted to believe him. They count on that. Go on. Well, there isn't much more. 
The next day, I raised a loan on my house for $2,500. Then I met Mrs. Boyd. She'd raised the money, too. We airmailed it, special delivery, like we'd been told to. That's all there is to it. Except that I never saw the girl again. You know that the call from San Francisco was traced to a phone booth in a drugstore. And that a man had checked out of the hotel where you'd sent your money the same day it arrived? Yes. And... I know now. And at no time were you suspicious? No. It all seemed so possible. And she'll be able to do the same thing to other women. If you had the chance, will you help stop this? Me? Why, how can I help? I'm just a, a... A citizen. It's the citizens who have made the laws it's our job to enforce. I just don't see how. Supposing you were called on by your government to help beat this thing, would you? Well, if I thought I could. Have you been sent to ask me this? Yes. My chief has a plan worked out. Will you come with me to Washington? Me? To Washington? I've arranged it with your boss, if you're willing. We'll take the plane out of here tonight. The plane? I... Well, I have a, a dread. We have no time to lose. Very well, then. We'll fly. The chief had left it up to me to determine if Mrs. Blake could fit in with his plan to trap these vultures preying on servicemen's families. And the more I got to know her, the more convinced I was that I had made a good choice. There was an underlying quality of determination and courage in her that quite belied her graying hair and tired eyes. These corridors seem endless. Here we are. Here's Mrs. Blake, Mr. Collins. Oh, glad you decided to come, Mrs. Blake. I only hope it's in my power to help, Mr. Well, Collins. I think it is. Oh, uh, sit down, Mrs. Blake, and I'll explain our plan to you. Thank you. Now, on this wall map of the United States, you'll notice little groups of colored pins. Each pin represents a person who's been victimized the way you have, Mrs. Blake. Why, there are hundreds of them. This has been going on since World War II. You'll notice there are four pins in each group. One of them in a large city, the other three in outlying sections. They pick out an area using some big city as a key point. Then they finish and they move on. Most of the time, clear across the country. And they haven't been caught? They're clever. They work slowly and carefully. Sometimes they use men, sometimes women. They'll pose as servicemen, retired generals, anything. And you think I can help? How? Uh, where do you live, Mrs. Blake? St. Cloud, Minnesota. All right, look at the map. Do you see anything peculiar about the group of pins around the St. Cloud area? No. Wait. There are only three pins instead of four. Yeah. One in St. Cloud, one in Rochester, and one in Red Wing. If they follow their pattern, where can we expect the next fraud to take place? Uh, in what big city? Minneapolis or St. Paul. That's right. You see, our whole plan is based on the assumption that they'll make their next move in one of the Twin Cities. We're setting a trap for them, Mrs. Blake. I see. And I'm to be the bait. Yes. And if you feel you can't... Go on, please. All right. Here's what we have in mind. We've rented a comfortable furnished house in St. Paul, where we're going to establish the mother of a boy who has recently been killed overseas. In a day or two... Minneapolis and St. Paul papers will carry the story of a woman who has received a telegram from the War Department telling her that her son, Timothy Crane, has been killed in action. You will be Timothy Crane's mother. There was such a boy. 
Yes. Poor soul. What about the boy's real mother? She died a few months ago. She was spared. We'll give you a complete file on her. But the the girl, she'll recognize me. If she shows up, we'll arrest her at once. But it may not be she. They have others. I've been assigned to work on this case with you, Mrs. Blake. What do you say? I say, what are we waiting for? Although I must warn you, if that girl shows up, my first impulse will be grab her by the throat. <laughs> You'd better keep your eye on temporary special agent Mrs. Blake, Fred. Yes. Oh, and Fred, book passage on the first flight to St. Paul. In St. Paul, we'd rented a neat frame house near a little lake on McCubbin Avenue. It was pretty well isolated against over-friendly or too-curious neighbors. Special temporary agent Mrs. Blake was, to say the least, a thorough housekeeper, and that first day found me moving furniture and beating rugs. But I was well rewarded with a chicken dinner that more than compensated me for my six or seven hundred stiff muscle. It was quite late when I was ready to leave for my hotel. You're sure you can't stay here? Just tonight. Oh, I'd better not, Mrs. Blake. Are you afraid? Well, not really. Just lonesome. But then I've been lonesome most of my life. Remember where I'm staying in case you need me? Hotel Lowry? If I'm not in when you phone, leave a message. Just say, uh, Mrs. Crane called. When will I see you again? Oh, I've got a busy day ahead of me tomorrow. I'm calling on the newspapers here to make sure your story gets front page. Then I've got to line up the local police. Your house will probably be under constant surveillance by tomorrow evening. You know, it's funny, Fred. But I never realized till now just how much protection the average person does have. It's a good thing to know. Takes the edge off a lot of gripes. <laughs> well, good night, Ma. What made you say that? I... I really don't know. It just came out. Thank you, Fred. Good night. You're on your own now. Yes. I'm on my own. Next day, I set the operation up. The chief of police assigned Lieutenant Malley to work exclusively on the case with me and ordered a 24-hour watch on the house on McCubbin. That evening, the story broke on the front page of every paper in town. I spent the next few days just waiting for the break. It didn't come. Nobody had tried to contact Mrs. Blake. I was pretty discouraged when I phoned her the next morning. Hello? Hello? This is Fred. How you doing? Oh, fine. There are three of the cutest children down the street. Remind me of Russ Burroughs, children up in Duluth. I'm kept busy all day baking cookies for them. <laughs> Nothing else? A phone call today from some woman who'd read the story in the paper. Offered me sympathy. Said she'd lost a boy, too, and felt the same way I did. Did she ask a lot of questions? Well, a few. Not too many. Did she say she wanted to come and see you? No. She said she might phone again. Did she leave a name? Just her first name. Alice, I think she said. I really don't believe she has anything to do with those Well, people. probably not, but if she phones again, try and get her name. And her voice, remember it. When are you coming to see me? Surely some evening. Oh, can't take a chance. Well, it's so quiet here at night. You know what, Mr. Thompson? What? It's a lonely life we special agents lead, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, an agent's life has its lonely moments. The next two days were full of them. I had nothing much to do but to get to know the Twin Cities and wish I were home with Mary and the kids. 
I took in a couple of movies and spent so much time sightseeing around the Capitol building that I thought I was going to be picked up for vagrancy. But the weekend finally dragged itself out. Monday morning, I sat around my room hoping for a call from Mrs. Blake. When it hadn't come by noon, I went down to the grill for some lunch. I caught the cashier waving at me. Home for you, Mr. Thompson. Oh, thanks. Hello? I got a phone call I thought you should know about. The lady who called Friday called again just now. Good. Go on. She wanted to know if I'd be home this afternoon. She said she might drop by and visit me. Oh, I'm so excited. I know you are. And I think I know why. You do? I think so. You listen to her closely and you think... I'm positive. The lady I spoke to on the phone was... was Margaret Taylor. I left my lunch on the table and promised a cab driver a dollar for every minute under ten it took him to get me to Mrs. Blake's. He left me off at the corner three dollars poorer. I got to Mrs. Blake's door and rang the bell. Come in. No. Stand here for a minute as though I'm trying to sell you something. Is there anyone watching us on the street? No. How about behind me by the lake? Well, there's nobody there. All right. I'll follow you in. You think she'll come, don't you? She may. I've got to find a place to hide. But I've got to be able to see and hear everything. How about the kitchen? She wouldn't go there. No, she might. I had my eye on this closet under the stairs. Well, it's pretty small. I can make it. Yeah, it's all right. If it's the same girl, she might remember me. If she does, I'll arrest her. If not, don't give it away. Well, that'll be hard. I think of what she's done. I know, I know. But we want them all, not just one. Did she say what time she'd be here? Around two o'clock. It's about ten minutes. Um, better leave this door open, enough to look out. A car stopped outside. Is it the girl? No, it's a man in uniform. His arm is in a sling. Is the girl with him? No, he's alone. He's coming up the stairs. It's all yours, Mrs. Blake. Or should I say Mrs. Crane? Uh, Mrs. Crane? Yes. Oh, you're Tim's mother. I'd know you anywhere. He's described you to me so perfectly. You were a friend of Tim's. We were buddies. Well, come in. Won't you sit down? Thanks, I will. I'm afraid I'm still a little weak. Had this arm of mine pretty badly shot up at your one. One. That's where Tim was. I've got some very startling news for you, Mrs. Crane, and I'd kind of like to prepare you for it. What is it? I have a message for you from Tim. They say Tim is dead. They sent a telegram saying Tim is dead. He's not, Mrs. Crane. He's alive. I saw him just a week ago today. They said he died three weeks ago at Chorwana. You're sure? You wouldn't do this to a poor mother. As true as I'm sitting here with you now, ma'am, Tim's alive. You saw him? Our company had been sending a patrol out of Sherwan to test the enemy lines. I was alongside of Tim when we were ambushed. They got most of our boys. The rest they took prisoners. Tim and I and a couple of others. But the telegram... Well, they make a lot of mistakes like that, ma'am. But Tim is alive. They took us to a prisoner of war camp up near Pyongyang. I can't understand it. Why are you home and not he? I fought my way out, Mrs. Crane. I banked a lot of money with one of the QM sergeants. I got it to the commies and they let me out. 
Then they sent me home by plane. Did you tell the authorities about Tim being there? No, ma'am. I, I thought I'd see you first. He asked me specially to see you right away. I wonder if you know how happy you've made me. I had the feeling all along that the telegram was wrong. We should get in touch with the authorities at once, don't you think? No, that, that would ruin his chances of getting out the way I did, Mrs. Crane. And I don't have to tell you that a commie prison camp is no place to be. Oh, I, I must get him out of there. Well, it, it takes money to do it. We can get him out. But it takes a lot of money. Money? When my son's life is at stake. Oh, I thought you'd feel that way about it. Now, I have the address of a liaison man in Los Angeles who can arrange the whole thing. Oh, then, then please, let's do it now. Oh, how about the money? $4,000 is what it takes. Cash. $4,000. I can get it. Yes, I, I can borrow that much. How soon? By tomorrow. I'll contact this man in Los Angeles and see if, if everything's all right. I mean, make sure that Tim is still around. Oh, you think... That's it... why we've got to move fast. Life isn't worth too much in a Korean prison of war camp. Contact him now, please. I'll try. That's the first portion of The Silent Men. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Now back to The Silent Men. Long distance? I'd like to talk to a Mr. Donald Carey at Gladstone 3962 in Los Angeles. Uh, yes, person to person. Uh, come here, Mrs. Crane. You can listen in, too. Oh. Hello? Uh, Mr. Carey? Who is calling? Uh, Fred Baxter. I contacted you a few days ago when I was on the coast. Oh, yes, I remember. Uh, what is it, Mr. Baxter? I would like to arrange the same thing for a friend of mine, Timothy Crane. Also at Pyongyang? Yes. You have the money? Yes, but we want to report on him first. Uh, we want to know... That He's still there. Ah. I shall read you immediately. I can have that information for you sometime tomorrow. Where can I reach you? Uh, what time tomorrow? Oh, in the afternoon, around three o'clock. Uh, what's your number, Mrs. Crane? Uh, Bradley, 0491, extension three. Bradley, 0491, extension three. You are prepared to negotiate? Speed is essential. Uh, tell him, yes. You'll have the money 24 hours after you call us tomorrow. Very good, sir. Goodbye. Oh, Mr. Baxter. I don't know how to thank you. Getting Tim out of that hole is all the thanks I want. After all, we're buddies. After he left, I phoned the lieutenant and told him to be sure and make no arrests yet. I wanted to know where our bogus serviceman was staying. I wanted him kept under constant watch from that minute on. A record of any calls he made, people he spoke to, the works. Mally guaranteed me satisfaction or my money back. 
While I'd been making the call, Mrs. Blake had fixed some coffee. That saboteur. We should have arrested him. Not yet. Not yet. We have to prove fraud, not intent to commit fraud. When he takes the money from you tomorrow in the presence of a witness, then we have a case. What about the money? I said I'd have it for him tomorrow. I'll get you the 4000 nicely marked dollars for the occasion. I called the chief in Washington and told him what had developed. He said he would have every telephone operator in Los Angeles waiting for Mr. Curry's phone call. Then I went to one of the papers and borrowed some good photographic equipment. I wanted a shot of Mr. Baxter taking the marked money. From there, I went to my room and fixed up a package of marked currency. My chores done, I went back to McCubbin Avenue and whiled away a pleasant evening. When the uniformed con man walked up the front steps the next afternoon, the machinery was in order, ready to go. Come in, Mr. Baxter. You haven't told anyone about this, have you? Remember, like I told you, you might spoil it for thousands of other G.I.s if you did. Oh, of course not. I promised you. Uh, How about the money? Did you get it? Yes. $4,000. I'll take it. Hello? Oh, it's Los Angeles calling. You may as well take it. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Timothy Crane's mother. The prison camp has been contacted by a showway radio. He is in good health and spirits. Oh, thank heaven. How soon can he be... Immediately the money reaches my hands. And if your government sees fit to fly him home, he should be with you in ten days. Ten days? Oh, it seems too wonderful. Goodbye. We cannot guarantee results unless the money is here as soon as possible. Oh, yes. Yes, you'll get it. Everything's all right? Yes. You have his address. Yes, uh, give me the money. Oh, here it is. Now, we better go to the post office and send it off. Oh, must I go along? I'm so tired. The excitement. Oh, there's a lot of money here, Mrs. Crane. You hardly know. Nonsense. After all the trouble you've gone to for Tim's sake. Oh, please take it. All right, ma'am. But I better go now so I can get it on the late afternoon plane. I shall never forget this, Mr. Baxter. Forget it. You're sweating it out over there. A buddy is the most precious thing you've got. I'll see you again, won't I? I'm going up north for a few days. I'll call you when I get back. Goodbye, Mrs. Crane. Goodbye. The man with the marked money didn't know it, but he left under full police escort. About ten minutes later, Lieutenant Malley called. He's here. Stop him if he tries to leave. I'll be there in a few minutes. Oh, I forgot to tell you. He isn't where he was yesterday. He moved this morning. Promoted himself. He's at the Lowry now. The Lowry? That's where I'm staying. On the same floor, too. Four doors away. Makes it like home, don't it? Is he alone? No, uh, his wife. Well, I hope it's his wife. He's been hanging around all afternoon reading books and eating chocolates. You want her, too? Very much. I'll be seeing you, then. Right. Come on, Mrs. Blake. We're going for a fast car ride. Fifth floor. I'm enjoying this thoroughly, Fred, but do you mind explaining why you brought me along? Later. Lieutenant Malley? Well, they're in the room. Haven't left. You'd better wait out here, Mrs. Blake. I do wish. Who's that? Room service. Come to pick up your lunch tray. Say, what is this? You ain't room service. What? Push on this door. Come on, out of the way. Okay, one, Sam. He's got a gun. It's a heist. You're wasting your time, man. <laughs> These kids are slipping. 
They don't even recognize a cop when they see one. Cops? What do you want with us? A package of $4,000 in marked money. Hand it over. What kind of money? Who's got money? You have $4,000 that you took from a Mrs. Crane on 1120 McCubbin Avenue. What's he talking about? Come off it. I've got eight lovely pictures of you in various poses, one of them holding a package of bills. I told you this one was coming too I, easy. I don't know what you're talking about, mister. You don't know anything about this uniform that's hanging in your closet? Oh, somebody must have left it there. I saw you coming in wearing it, and your arm was in the same sling. So I, I broke my arm. So what? Just a minute. That broken arm of yours. Let's take a look at it. Well, you don't. Yes, we do. Well, nicely tucked away in the cast. And all marked just the way we ordered it. You can leave me out of this, officer. I got nothing to do with it. I didn't even know what he was Too up. bad. Mally, you can let the lady in now. Right. You got nothing on me. What my husband's done's got nothing to do with me. Okay, Mrs. Blake. That's her. That's the woman. Me? I never saw this lady in my life. You never saw me in St. Cloud. You never came to me with a story that my son was still alive. Well, I'll... I'll show hey. you... Oh, Mrs. Blake, take it easy. Oh, get her away from me. You haven't got a chance, me. Mrs. Taylor. Lots of people are going to remember you. To their great sorrow. Just let me out. Uh, Why, I'll show you. Hey, Thompson. You know what we'd better do? Take these two into protective custody. They aren't safe with Special Agent Blake around. <laughs> This is Douglas Fairbanks again. The capture of the bogus G.I. closes another chapter in the distinguished chronicle of our silent men. The special agents of all branches of our federal government who daily risk their lives to protect the lives of all of us. The Silent Men is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's case was written by Lewis and Russoff and transcribed in Hollywood. Only the names and places were fictional. Featured in tonight's cast were Bill Tracy... Virginia Gregg, Ann Diamond, Tom McKee, Jack Crucian, and Kurt Martell. Your announcer is Don Stanley. Douglas Fairbanks may currently be seen in the motion picture, Mr. Drake's Duck. Listen again next week and every week to other exciting cases involving the law enforcement adventures of the special agents of our federal government. For they are the silent men. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. And that's The Silent Men from December 16, 1951, with the bogus G.I. starring Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., with William Tracy, Virginia Gregg, and Jack Crucian in the cast, as heard on NBC December 16, 1951. Hope you enjoyed The Silent Men. We'll play more of those episodes here on Hollywood 360. Before we tune into information, please, I want to remind all of our listeners to subscribe to Remind Magazine. That's our main sponsor here on Hollywood 360. It's a tremendous magazine, full color. You'll absolutely love it. It's all about nostalgia and all the fun things you like. If you like this radio show, you'll absolutely love Remind Magazine. Just go to their website, remindmagazine.com. Check them out. Or you can pick up a copy at any Barnes & Noble or Walmart store. But the best way to check out Remind Magazine is at their website, remindmagazine.com, where you'll save about 60% off the newsstand price. I promise you will love Remind Magazine. 
Okay, it's time now for Information Please. This was a quiz show. Came to radio in 1938. Lasted all the way to 1951. It was moderated by Clifton Fadiman. Now, a panel of experts would attempt to answer questions submitted by listeners. Now, listeners received money if their question was used and additional money if the panelists were not able to answer their questions correctly. Panel regulars included writer-actor-pianist Oscar Levant and renowned intellects Franklin P. Adams and John Kieran. Each show would also include a guest panelist, usually a celebrity, or a politician or writer. It transitioned to television for one season in 1952. Well, we have a 1938 broadcast for you now. The moderator is Clifton Fadiman. Let's go back to August 9, 1938, for Information, Please. Information, Please. Wake up, America. Time to turn the tables on the expert. Here's how. Send us questions, one or more, and the right answers. If our editors okay them, they go before a board of authorities, you'll meet them in a minute or two, without the board seeing them in advance. Each question accepted wins you $2, and if it stumps the board, $5 more. Our regular master of ceremonies is back with us again, Clifton Fadiman, literary critic of the New Yorker magazine, and the Simon Legree of Information, Please. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I've just come back from a week in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and while I was there, I spent most of my time answering questions directed at me by my son, Jonathan, who is six years old and wants to grow up to be like John Kieran. It's going to be either his life or mine, I guess. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a relief to get back here again where I can ask the questions and John Kieran can answer them. That's Mr. Kieran over there in the corner running through the alphabet under his breath. And beside him, I'm glad to see Franklin P. Adams, old friend and crooner. The only man of my acquaintance who has managed to be both at the same time. Mr. Adams, greetings. Let me tell you in confidence, Mr. Adams, that whenever you're stuck tonight, the answer is always Shakespeare. Got that? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Shakespeare? Shakespeare. Before my time, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you try to remember Shakespeare. You don't have anything else to do this evening. We have with us tonight two distinguished guests of honor. The first is Alton Cook, radio editor of the New York World Telegram. And if you want my frank opinion, subjecting Mr. Cook to a half hour of this program is a swell way not to make friends with and influence radio editors. Finally, we're especially proud to have on our program tonight Alice Dewar Miller, whose novels, short stories, and plays have been enjoyed by millions. Perhaps you may not know that Mrs. Miller is also something of an enthusiast on astronomy. Is that right, Mrs. Miller? Yes, that's right. And uh, also mathematics. She also claims to know the names of all the vice presidents and repeats them to herself every night while brushing her hair. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is to this that she owes the secret of her charm and the vigor of her mind. Ladies and gentlemen, you can do the same. Just send for our free trial package of vice president. <laughs> now, as I've said before, and still remains true, this is a spontaneous program. Our four mental giants have never seen or heard these questions before. They'll probably demonstrate that in a moment. As for me, I've glanced at the questions long enough just long enough to look up the pronunciation of all words over two syllables. I'm going to put the questions to the entire board. Any member who feels confident he knows the answer may raise his hand. A question composed of one or two parts must be answered by a single member. If it's composed of more than two parts, the board may get together on it. But if any part is answered wrongly, we lose $5. I'll cry cash, 
and the lucky questioner will get $5 smacked out of the register. Now, Mrs. Miller and gentlemen, vacation's over, school started. Are you all ready? Let's go. The first question from Mrs. Helen T. Moore, 25 North Liberty Street, Asheville, North Carolina. Complete the following famous Little Willie jingles. There are three of them, and you've got to get all three. One, <clears throat> Little Willie in the best of sashes fell in the fire and was burnt to ashes. By and by, the room grew chilly, but Mr. Adam... But no one cared to poke up Willie. Nice work. <laughs> Two. Uh, this question gets cheerfuller and cheerfuller, or more and more cheerful. Choose one out of two. Uh, little Willie from the mirror licked the mercury all off, thinking in his childish error it would cure the whooping cough. At the funeral, Willie's mother sadly said to Mrs. Brown, "'Twas a Mr. Kieran. Chilly day for Willie when the mercury went down. <laughs> the third one has always been my favorite. Three. Little Willie hung his sister. She was dead before we missed her. Willie's always up to trick. Ain't he cute, Mr. Adam? He's only six. That's right. Perfect score on that one. Mr. Adam. I think you ought to give the authorship of those. No, you ought to give the authorship of those. Those are written by Harry Graham. Harry Graham? Yes, sir. An odd bit of information that we never expected to get free of charge this evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> those limericks are written by Harry Graham. I have just learned from Mr. Adams. Thank you, Mr. Adams. The late Harry Graham. The late Harry Graham. <laughs> Mr. And Kieran, not limericks. Uh, Mr. Kieran, uh, just about how late was it, do you suppose? Kieran, very accurate on that sort of information. The next one comes from Mrs. Scott Mitchell, 2121 Columbine, Boulder, Colorado. Give five slang expressions that mention food. Now, you can get together on this. Five slang expressions that mention food. And I am the judge as to whether these expressions are slang or not. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that, what you do not hear is thinking. <laughs> Mr. Adams. Penfruit. Penfruit, perfectly good, I suppose. Uh, two, uh, Mr. Cook. Hash house. Well, you're pretty near to food itself, of course. Well, that's a restaurant. Not quite what I meant. Yes, it is a restaurant. Of a sort. Uh, I wonder whether we can get a better one than that. Slang expression. Mrs. Miller. In the soup. In the soup is very good indeed. That's two. Mr. Cook. The old apple and baseball. The old apple's perfectly all right. That's three. Need two more. Oh, there are loads of them. Uh, Mr. Kieran. I'll call somebody a hot potato. Yes, you might. <laughs> uh, that's four. Mr. Adams. Cold turkey. Yes. Very good. Nuts to you, Mr. Adams, is another one. <laughs> Now, the next one from Miss Lyle Case, 9306 49th Avenue, Elmhurst, Long Island. Name four persons, in fiction or in folklore, whose hair, hair, plays an important part in their stories. Now, Mrs. Miller and gentlemen, I want you to use your head on that one. Four persons in fiction or folklore. Mrs. Miller. I think of two. Oh, let's have two. Lady Godiva. Yes, very important indeed. Essential. And <laughs> Millicent. Millie's on. Very good indeed. Uh, Mr. Kerr. Absalom in the Bible. Absalom in the Old Testament. Excellent. And Mr. Cook. Samson. Samson, of course. Uh, let's have another one just for a dividend. Mr. Adams, had you thought of another? <laughs> no remarks from the audience. The audience is the Hitler. Right this evening. <laughs> Adams, I don't know how long you can keep on doing that sort of thing here. <laughs> let's do it one more time. 
Next time you were telling me you will be saying the hare and the tortoise, and I won't allow that one. <laughs> Uh, that's correct. Now, Miss A. Warren of Providence, Rhode Island, wants you to identify the following groups in American history. Now, this is serious stuff, ladies and gentlemen, the following groups in American history. There are five of them, of them, you have to identify four out of the five. One, know-nothings. Uh, that's a group. Uh, know-nothings. No, no personal references. Uh, know-nothings. Uh, Mrs. Miller. Well, they were the anti-Catholic group. Uh, when did they flourish? I was afraid history. you were going to ask me that. <laughs> uh, could you uh, date them at all? Oh, uh, say within a century or two. Well, I could date them as 19th century, but I wouldn't say... That's very good. 19th century is extremely accurate. Uh, yes, that's true. They're about the middle of the 19th century, as a matter of fact. A political party who... Uh, why were they called Know Nothing? Could you tell us that? No, I don't know that. Don't know that? Okay. Can I anyone help us on that? make it up for you. I'm sure you could. <laughs> They were called know-nothings because when they were asked for what they stood, they professed secrecy and said they knew nothing. Sound like a possibility for a new party. Excellent platform. Two carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers. That's an easy one. Mr. Kieran, let's have that one. Carpetbaggers were the fellows who rushed down from the north to take advantage uh, of the uh, post-bellum uh, days in the south. Yes, that's correct. Why were they called carpetbaggers? Because that's, they carried all they had in the world in a carpet bag. Neat work. I didn't think you'd know that part of it. Uh, three, mugwumps. Mugwumps. M-U-G-W-U-M-P-S. Mr. Cook? That's a pre-Civil War uh, political party. No, I don't think so. Uh, I believe they were post-Civil War, though the word was used uh, shortly after the Civil War. Mr. Adams, can you help us on that? I think it's a man who changes his politics. His party. His party politics. Uh, well, independent Republicans who demanded reforms in 1884 and who supported Cleveland. But they do, uh, they have changed their politics. That's correct. I'd allow that one. Remember the famous definition of... Uh, Harold Willis Dodds of Princeton, Mr. Adams, about a mugwump? No, that escapes me for the moment. <laughs> it escapes me to Adam, Mr. Adams, and I've just caught it. Uh, President Dodds once said that a mugwump is a man with his mug on one side of the fence and his wump on the other. <laughs> All right, we'll let mugwump go. And four muckrakers. Muckrakers. Oh, that's pretty easy. Volunteers on that, Mr. Adams. Muckraker comes from Pilgrim's Progress. All the way from Pilgrim's? Must be tired by this time. Uh, but how is it man used in with connection? A yes, but who, how is it used in connection with our history? It was used by Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, about, uh, Lincoln, Steffens, and other magazine writers who, uh, exposed corruption. Yes, that's correct. Uh, are there any of those muckrakers alive today? I think there are some, uh, I mean of that old group. I remember some, an, an old, uh, from the old Everybody's magazine, Mr. John T. Flynn, I think, was, uh, one of that old group. I'm not sure about that. That's correct on Mark Rick. It's five copperheads. That word's come into uh, use a good deal only in the last uh, month or so. Mr. Cook, copperheads. They were northerners in the Civil War who... During the, it was a term applied to in the Civil War to... Uh, okay, so far. To uh, southerners with northern symphony. Northern Dem No, just the opposite. They were northern Democrats who were disloyal to the north during the Civil War. Is that what you said? I don't remember now. I, uh... <laughs> well, it's too late to go back. Anyway, they did get four out of five, or let's say four and a half. So far, we haven't been able to get these experts down for the count. The next one from Miss Mildred Milch of 385 Central Park West. Miss Milch wants you to identify and quote the first stanza of a well-known poem, of which this is another stanza. My heart strings round thee cling, close as thy bark, old friend. Here shall the wild birds sing, and still thy branches bend. 
I get to know a lot of beautiful poetry at this job. Very lovely, lovely poetry. Give you two seconds on that one. My heart strings round thee cling, close as thy bark, old friend. Here shall the wild bird sing, and still thy branches bend. What's the poem? Is it uh, just a two-verse poem? No, no, I think it's four cylinders. <laughs> no, it's a rather, a rather long poem. A rather long poem? Was Ra- it? Rather long poem. Have you the name of the author there? Uh, I have the name here. Do you want it? Would it be Morris? Uh, yes, that's right. All right. Uh, Woodman spare that tree. That's correct. <laughs> that's the first portion of Information Please. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next time, it's the conclusion to Information Please from 1938. Then we'll rock it off into the future on Dimension X with a good Kurt Vonnegut Jr. story from 1950. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.